0: When you're self-compassionate about your failure, it allows you to learn more from the failure. It's such a truism that failure is our best friend. A great perspective from author and guest Kristen Neff, PhD, in her conversation with Peter Atiyah on The Drive podcast. Listen in to hear what cured Peter's abusive inner critic, how to reparent yourself with self-compassion to become a more securely attached adult, and why self-kindness, self-compassion, and connectedness can affect your quality of life for the better. It's Tracy. Thanks for being here. And welcome to another replay of the day on this episode of Invisible You, a podcast for women over 40 living courageously. So I don't think I mentioned this in the last few episodes, but I wanted to tell you about the party I had for myself throughout most, if not all, of February, and no, you didn't miss my birthday. It was actually a pity party. That's right, a whole month to feel sorry for myself because nothing says I heart you like a 46-year-old woman walking around in her pajamas all day whining about the unfairness of life while stuffing her face with gluten-free chocolate chip cookies. Good times. And until recently, or two days ago, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, The Quote of the Day Show, with Yo, What's Up Y'all, host Sean Croxton. And it featured motivational speaker and preacher Eric Thomas, who was giving a talk about previous generations and how much harder life was back then compared to now. And how his great grandmother worked herself to the bone cleaning houses for other people and working out in the cotton fields all day. And he goes on to ask the audience, What do you have to complain about? What is really so bad in your life right now that you need to complain? And I started looking around my nice ass apartment thinking, Oh my God, what is wrong with not me, because there's nothing wrong with me, but what is wrong with my thinking lately? I'm not sick, starving, all my body parts seem to be working just fine. I have beautiful, healthy, happy-ish kids. I shop at Whole Foods for fuck's sake, and what I don't get there, I have delivered right to my damn door from a company halfway across the U.S. I also take acting classes. Yes, I actually pay a guy to teach me how to play and pretend to be someone else. Oh, and did I mention that I could probably support an entire third world country with what I spend on all the latest and greatest health and beauty products? And what about the amazing, and I mean truly amazing women that I surround myself with? Not that I would mention any names, Rachel, Amy, Tam, and Marion. So yeah, I'm pissed at myself for getting stuck in my sock for so damn long. It's ridiculous. A moment, a few moments, fine, a week, a month, longer? Hell no. I have it so friggin easy. It's insane. And just to give a little context while I'm sitting here talking to you, there are guys working in the apartment next to me, hammering and banging away that earlier, I'm not gonna lie, I was cursing them. (laughs) Yeah, it's like they were purposefully trying to annoy me with getting up at the crack of dawn, schlepping all their shit here three flights up, doing hard manual labor, and working their asses off all day until dark, while I sit here in my cozy apartment and complain without a care in the world. I'm done. Okay, and I'm not trying to minimize how I feel or the thoughts that I have, but really... Let's put things in perspective here. I have it pretty darn good. And the only person I hurt when I feel sorry for myself, well, it's me. So, enough already. Do we have challenges? Of course. Do we all struggle with our own shit? Yes. And that's okay. That's more than okay. It's completely normal. But come on, girl. The hardest thing I have to deal with is my own endless chatter that make up these dumbass stories I tell myself. But on the bright side, at least I have a good imagination, right? Silver lining? Yes? No? Whatever. In the middle of all this, I ended up joining a Facebook group dedicated to women over 40, just for shits and giggles and to see what other women like me are struggling with. And while many of them have a pretty healthy and positive attitude, there's still a lot of complaining and woe is me going on. And while I appreciate and totally understand that people are going through some stuff and life gets hard. It can still be difficult not to get sucked into the negativity. And I want to serve and support anyone that needs it because I'm sick of serving myself. (laughs) And there's no better way to get out of your own funk than to help others get out of theirs. But I can't forget that who I surround myself with is who I become. I'm not saying I plan on leaving the group. But like Sean says, I'll just go less often and not stay as long. And here's where our topic finally comes in. Self-compassion and gratitude because the last thing I need to do is beat myself up for beating myself up. And from the discussion between Kristen, who's an expert in mindful compassion, and Peter, the host of the show, there are definitely more loving and nurturing ways to go after what you want without beating the crap out of yourself and making everyone else miserable along the way. And that's what I'm interested in, getting there without the crazy highs and lows that come when using things like grit and willpower alone, they inevitably fail me. But isn't life supposed to be difficult? Shouldn't we just be able to power through with discipline and self-sacrifice to get the things we need and, and, you know, self-flagellate if we don't? Maybe, to some extent. But what if there's a better way? A way that builds you up rather than cuts you down? I'm kind of sick of the little bitch in my head that tells me I suck. And in the same, but not so same, words of Seth Rogen in Knocked Up. Fuck you, Mean Tracy. You're a crazy bitch, Mean Tracy. You actually could insert the word hormones like he does and it would probably still fit. And yeah, I know. I need a better name for that little evil inside. I was thinking maybe Darla or Carrie. I don't know. What do you think? Maybe Damien, you know, from The Omen. But it makes me think of the TV show, not the creepy movie from the 70s. And he's so handsome in it that it's hard to think of him as evil. And then, of course, because he's cute, my mind automatically goes to sex and the fact that I'll probably never have it again. So it's really a rabbit hole I'd just rather avoid. I'll just stick to me and Tracy for now and keep working on it. All suggestions are welcome. You got a name for yours? Anyway, I want to have fun. I don't want to be in fucking love with myself. I want excitement and joy and appreciation for who I am despite this struggle and maybe even because of it. I don't want to rip myself up to shreds. It makes me feel like crap. And the only thing it serves is to give me a hit of anxiety-laden motivation that lasts a quick minute like an addict who gets their fix. So I say, screw it. Life's a never-ending experiment till we die, so why not try a bunch of shit and see what sticks? especially, as Kristen says, it's based in science. Now, if someone were to ask me, Tracy, what's your superpower? I know what I'd say. Why, self-compassion and gratitude. The good news, we all have access, so we can all be superheroes. The bad news, we can all be superheroes. So much for being a special snowflake. So how's it used? Well, the next time you're in the middle of a little mental torment in like, what, five minutes if you're anything like me stop catch yourself like Peter does in the clip flip that conversation and focus on the positive in it lately I've even been using the voice memo app on my phone to record the opposite of whatever negative thoughts I'm having kind of turning it into an affirmation and just do what works for you it feels awkward at first but it gets easier with practice and practice makes comfortable
1: Yeah. I have a friend who in sort of helping me think about this. So unlike you, I'm probably naturally much more self-critical. You sort of describe yourself as probably in the middle, kind of normal. I would be an Olympic level self-critic, including actually audibly. I mean, I could literally, you'd think I was a crazy person at times because I could literally speak in a voice like this to myself in a incredibly harsh and critical way. So A friend of mine, Rick Elias, who has been on this podcast and who I consider not just a friend, but kind of a a life mentor, said, I want you to practice something, which is when you're in that moment and you're about to have that discussion with yourself, I want you to picture that the same events occurred that are upsetting you, but now it wasn't you that did it. It was one of your close friends that did it. How would you console him? This is interesting. It was for me, a process of five months of doing this. But for example, I'll give you, so there's two things I do almost every day. I either shoot my bow and arrow or drive my race car simulator. Now those are two seemingly nonsensical activities, but unfortunately they both have become barometers of self-worth. So when they don't go well, the inner self-directed hatred is enormous. And it results in anger and tantrums and outbursts and feelings of total worthlessness when they don't go well. So instead, what I started doing, and I literally did this every single day for five months, is after every single episode of doing one of those activities, which meant every single day, I would take my phone out and I would speak into the recorder as though it were my friend who had that bad experience. And I would say... I would use my name. So I'd say, Hey, Peter, I know you just had a really bad day shooting and you couldn't hit the broadside of a barn if your life depended on it, but it doesn't mean you're bad. It just means that you had a bad day at archery today, but you're still a great dad and you're going to get another chance to come out here and do this tomorrow. And there are probably reasons for it today. You might not even know why you didn't shoot poorly, but blah blah blah, blah, blah. I would send text that message to my therapist every single day as a form of accountability. It really was amazing how much it de-escalated me. It was actually very quick. It used to be at the point where driving or shooting poorly could ruin my day. And it got to the point where within about three minutes, I had forgotten about it.
2: Yeah, that's the power of self-compassion.
1: I think viscerally, it makes so much sense using, like I said, the trivial example of do you shoot well or not? If your self-worth is dependent on performance, you're doomed to fail at some point.
2: Right. And then when you do fail, what do you do? And so people criticize themselves thinking it's going to improve their performance. And by the way, it does kind of work. It has to be admitted. Many people have gotten through med school or law school through harsh self-criticism. So it's not like it doesn't work at all, but it works with a lot of negative side effects, like a performance anxiety is a big one. So if you have a lot of anxiety because you're slamming yourself, you're beating yourself up, next time you have some big test or something, you're really worried about doing well because you know if you don't, you've know you gotten the negative reinforcement of beating yourself up. So it makes you more anxious, which actually undermines your performance. It can make you more disconnected from others if you're really invested in doing better than other people. And that can lead to like little interpersonal behaviors that actually aren't good at creating closeness and connection. It kind of works. There's a lot of problems with it and self-compassion works better. What we know in the research is constructive criticism is more effective than harsh criticism. And we know that, of course we know that. You still want criticism. You wanna know where you went wrong and how you could improve. It's not like, oh, that's fine. If you're a professional archer saying, oh, well, just had a bad day, that's not gonna help you and that's not gonna help you achieve your goals, which means it's actually not ultimately loving. If you're a professional archer You want to do your best because that's related to your happiness and well-being. But what's going to help you do your best? Constructive criticism says, okay, well, here's what didn't work. And you did it this way. This didn't work. Why don't we try it this way? I believe in you. you got my support. I'm here for you. That type of constructive voice is actually more effective. Yes, a coach that says, you're crap. You better do better. It kind of works. It doesn't work as well as constructive criticism. And we know that. There's lots of research like that, that basically, so what happens is when you're self-compassionate about a failure, first of all, it allows you to learn more from the failure. I mean, it's such a truism. Failure is our best teacher. But if you're full of shame and you're just really mad at yourself, you don't actually have the presence of mind to look objectively and say, huh, where did I go wrong? How could I do better next time? But self-compassion support actually does give you that presence of mind to be able to learn from your experiences. And so self-compassion leads to what they call growth mindset, where you actually learn from your mistakes as opposed to a fixed mindset, which means you just think you're stupid or smart, one or the other. How
1: soon in a child's development can these patterns be set?
2: We don't have a lot of data with kids. Partly that's because we don't have a good way to measure self-compassion in children. There are a few scales. actually just came out the scale for youth that can be used for younger kids at brand new it came out like last year it hasn't been used much we don't have a lot of data on this but I suspect that about age seven or eight once kids have learned about friendship and they have like Puget would call two-way thinking you can understand reciprocity they understand concepts of fairness they understand kind of that back and forth they could take the perspective of another um To be self-compassionate, you have to take the perspective of another towards yourself. And also, by the way, self-criticism doesn't really kick in until later on in development, partly because of that, because children are just kind of like happy and they have a positivity bias and they tend to think they're great unless their parents tell them the exact opposite. Kind of It's called one-way thinking. They're all one or the other. I would assume two-way thinking would have to kick in, which would be about age seven or eight. So there are some good books out there, and you can find them on my website if you you want to get the reference, to kind of teach kids when they learn about friendship, that they should also be their own best friend. Learn about what it means to be a good friend, they should also learn to be a good friend to themselves. And I suspect that's probably the best time to start introducing these concepts. And then adolescence, once you start getting metacognition and you get more abstract thinking, it's even more appropriate because that's when really the self-concept formation starts kicking in. What kind of person am I? And then you can start having conversations with teenagers. They actually do understand issues like, do you really want your sense of self-worth to be contingent on being pretty enough or having people like you or being smart enough? They have enough abstract thinking skills to be able to understand something like self-compassion.
1: There's also some literature for formal diagnoses of PTSD, isn't there?
2: Oh, in terms of self-compassion? Yes. It's not so much that self-compassion aids in the diagnosis of PTSD. There's a lot of research actually on self-compassion and trauma. So there's kind of two parts to that research. One is that people with early childhood trauma, so sexual, emotional, physical abuse, it actually hinders the ability to be self-compassionate as an adult. And that's mainly because of the attachment system. So if you have secure attachment, it means you think you're kind of valuable, you're worthy, and your needs are worth being met. If you had secure attachment with your parents, and your parents treated you like you were worthy and they met your needs consistently, then when you're an adult, it's easier to think that I'm worthy and I'm going to meet my needs because I'm worthy of having my needs met. If you have insecure attachment, then you may not think that your needs are worthy of being met. And if your parents were actually harshly critical or actually abusive, What can happen is the system that's supposed to make you feel safe, the attachment system, gets fused with feelings of fear because these people who are your only source of safety and comfort in life are also terrifying you. And then so what happens is everything gets kind of jumbled up and mixed in. And for some people, actually, it can be frightening to give themselves compassion. Paul Gilbert talks about this. He calls it fear of self-compassion because basically when you're activating the attachment system, which is supposed to make you feel safe, it actually makes you unsafe. And so some people, when they start opening their hearts with self-compassion, they have memories, traumatic memories come up, or like just this voice in their head saying, you're crap, you're worthless, or maybe some memories of kind of some sort of abuse. It's harder to be self-compassionate if you have a trauma history. But having said that, self-compassion is one of the best ways to deal with early childhood trauma because what you're doing is you're like reparenting yourself. So maybe the program is, okay, you're worthless, you aren't worthy of care. But if you actually intentionally give yourself compassion for those feelings, which are so hard, wow, it's really hard to feel that I'm worthless. These feelings of shame, they're really difficult. How can I learn to relate to the pain of the trauma with some kindness? It's not like cognitive behavioral therapy, where you work directly with rewriting those negative schemas. I mean, that's also useful. It has its role for sure. What you're really doing is learning how to hold the pain, any pain with this kind, supportive stance. And so when you do that, there's actually some research showing you can get what they call earned secure attachment as an adult. You can actually learn to have a secure attachment schema through self-compassion. Maybe your parents didn't meet your needs consistently, but you can learn to meet your own needs consistently when you're frightened or you need help or you need support in some way. It is harder, the road's bumpier, and it usually really helps to have a good therapist, help you unpack all of this. Once people can do it, there's lots of research, especially with compassion-focused therapy created by Paul Gilbert, which is specifically designed for people with early trauma. There's different ways you have to approach it, and the way in is a little different, has to go slower, and things are a little different. But it actually is remarkably effective, and you can get people who are able to heal from early trauma through self-compassion. And so there's research showing this. If you look at trauma that's not caused by early childhood, for instance, there's a lot of work with combat veterans. So combat veterans who went to Iraq or Afghanistan who experienced a lot of combat trauma, what they found is those veterans who are more self-compassionate toward themselves about what they'd experienced, they were less likely to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome. And so in a way, Post-traumatic stress syndrome is when, you know, the trauma kind of almost gets locked in your body and you keep re-experiencing the trauma because you can't process it. And so self-compassion towards the trauma helps you process it so it doesn't get kind of, you might say, locked into place through post-traumatic stress syndrome.
1: Yeah, which really makes so much sense when you look at the incredible success that the organization MAPS has had in testing MDMA. In people with PTSD, because MDMA is the ultimate compassion molecule. So it basically takes a slight amount of compassion you might have and it just amplifies it tremendously. And that's presumably why people in as few as two or three sessions can have otherwise debilitating PTSD rectified.
2: I think there's only one study that did show that MDMA increased self compassion, but there isn't a lot. I think there's a huge. We'll see starting. There's a huge boom already in looking at psychedelics, MDMA, mushrooms, because what they do is they give you an experience of basically love and connectedness. And I think, as you say, one of the reasons probably that it works is by increasing well, both self compassion and a sense of connectedness. The two are actually, they go hand in hand. I wouldn't be surprised if we find that that's kind of the active ingredient of how it works is to increase self compassion. Increased mindfulness and increased connectedness. The three components of self-compassion are self-kindness, mindfulness, and common humanity or kind of a sense of connectedness. And the three really do go hand in hand. They operate as a system.
1: What's the relationship between those and physical health?
2: So there is an emerging literature that shows that self-compassion is linked to better physical health. It's kind of a small to medium correlation, maybe. I think like there was a meta-analysis that found 0.28, 0.30. So significant, not mind-blowing, but still there with physical symptoms, at least self-reports of like colds, aches, pains, physical symptoms. A lot of research, actually, Fuchsia Sirwa is one of the big research in this area. And she finds that it's linked to better physical health. There's also research showing, this is probably why it's linked to physical health, is it operates through the nervous system. So self-compassion, and this is done either looking at self-report of self-compassion or by like enhancing a self-compassionate mood. You can have people think of something they're dealing with and write to themselves a paragraph, being mindful, kind of accepting of what's happening, remembering that they aren't alone, common humanity, and being kind to themselves like they would be to a friend. If you induce the three components of self-compassion, what we find is, first of all, it reduces sympathetic activity, things like inflammation, things like cortisol levels, and also increases heart rate variability, which is the main marker we have of parasympathetic activity. And it's probably by changing the nervous system reaction that it influences physical health because, of course, what your body's doing, how reactive it is, is linked to how healthy you are. Also, immune function is linked to better immune function.
1: It actually seems to me like I wouldn't be surprised if a greater body of literature emerges from this, because I think it sounds so cliche to say that the mind and the body are related. But they are. They clearly are. And I think anybody who's tried to help people in one of those dimensions and not been able to help the other is pretty aware of that focus. And, and certainly I interviewed Bob Sapolsky some time ago, and I think his work in stress is just so interesting. And stress is really, to me, kind of just one other piece of this vector. So I'm excited to hear that we're becoming more aware of this because obviously the lens I kind of come at all these things through is longevity and longevity isn't just living longer, it's living better. And that for me, I think was the turning point in coming to accept the value of this was even if figuring out a way to become more self-compassionate didn't make you live one day longer.
2: It increases telomere length though. So
1: (laughs) But even if it didn't, the impact it would have on the quality of your life alone would be worth it.
0: If you'd like to learn more about the power of self-compassion, check out the full interview with Kristen Neff and Peter Attia on The Drive podcast. Links to that and both their social media are in the show notes below, along with a link to Eric Thomas' talk on the Quote of the Day show. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and share with someone you think might benefit. And until next time, thanks for listening.